The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media, and technology, markets, creatives, so much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. People become convinced that, you know, 7% inflation isn't just a one-year thing, that it's going to be like this year and year out. That makes it much harder to, to get prices back down to the rates of inflation the Fed would prefer to see. And so the reason they're thinking about four or five, maybe more interest rate hikes this year is to try to nip that process in the bud. How high will interest rates go? This multi, multi-trillion dollar question is dominating markets as inflation boils and the Fed enters the delicate job of hiking rates out of the pandemic. What about the wild cards of the global savings glut and Wall Street's lack of an institutional memory about high interest rates? Stay tuned. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR.org, NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout out to our radio partners, WVTF Virginia Public Radio, WERA in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you too would like us on your air. Joining me from Washington, D.C. is Ryan Avent, Trade and International Economics Editor at The Economist. The cover is How High Will Interest Rates Go? Uh, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well. How are you? Uh, well, how high will interest rates go? This is an existential issue that has kept me up for much of this century. You know, in reading this feature, I'm thinking to myself, are we going to be looking back at this time when uh, the Fed seemingly every couple of years has to go into emergency interest rate policy and look back and say, gosh, that was not normal. There's inevitably a bill to pay. Well, it's a really good question. As you say, it's a really important question. I, I think the answer uh, depends on how uh, how long into the future you're looking. And so, you know, if we, if we just think about the next year or two, sure. you know, we've got an inflation issue in, in the United States, but also all over the world that is rooted in, you know, the, the big pandemic relief policies that governments enacted and then supply chain disruptions and things like that. As the Fed tries to fight that inflation, interest rates are going to go up. They may go up higher than we've seen uh, in, in several decades. But then when you think about the slightly longer time horizons, uh, you know, three, four, five, ten years down the road, uh, I'm not so certain that we've actually left behind the old pre-pandemic normal where rates seem to just bump along close to zero forever. I want to quote from your essay, interest rate rises are daunting because much of the world has got used to an era of almost free money. No G7 central bank has set interest rates above 2.5% in over a decade. Back in 1990, by comparison, all of them were above 5%. Cheap financing has come to seem like an indelible feature of rich economies. It has let governments run extraordinary deficits, propelled asset prices to astronomical highs, and forced policymakers to reach for other tools such as bond buying and stimulus checks to prop up the economy during slowdowns. 
You know, I think about the Federal Reserve is far more complex and intricate and uh, powerful than it was upon creation more than 100 years ago. Why does the central tool remain so kind of blunt and dumb that it could take it could take interest rates to zero it could buy tens of billions of bonds every month send asset prices soaring and a, a side effect of that is inflation but it's not necessarily going to cause people to hire or for wages to go up it disproportionately to my mind in my experience helps stock and real estate and and uh, risk asset holders well they you know they have so many different things that they have to take into account uh and you know i mean the the mandate mandate that they get from congress uh is in itself kind of a contradictory one that they're supposed to both achieve stable prices low inflation but also maximum employment uh and so you know over the generations economists have argued how do we best do this with monetary policy and you know, the sort of lodestar for not just the Fed, but most central banks is a, is an inflation target around 2%. And the question is, how do they achieve that? What they try to do is adjust interest rates. But when you are in a really low interest rate environment and interest rates fall all the way to near zero, then you're, then you're kind of stuck because you can't really push rates far into negative territory. Uh, and so that's when the bond buying comes in. And you're right, like a big effect of monetary easing uh, is often to push up asset prices. That's part of what happens. Why does it seem like that's the main effect of monetary easing? I mean, I'm not in the trenches. I'm not doing kind of bank-to-bank -bank lending or anything, but I've now seen this in, in 2001 and 2002, what, you know, and Greenspan kept rates unnaturally low for too long, and people argued that that swelled the subprime bubble, and then what happened in 2007 and 2008, and the Fed had to go to zero, and, and there was quantitative easing and other extraordinary measures, and then we have this kind of exogenous crash and this cataclysm and the pandemic. Well, what do you know? Within a matter of weeks, the Fed goes to zero, and we see... <laughs> Not that it's necessarily one-to-one -one or, or, or caused purely by that, but asset prices and risk-taking and risk profligacy in the two years following that, far more than, than wages or core economic activity. Well, I think it's a reflection of the, the kinds of tools that the Fed has and the kinds of tools it doesn't have. So I think if, if, you know, if the Fed could do whatever it wanted, then when the economy started to grow more slowly what it would probably choose to do is wire money to just households uh, to kind of do what the government does when it send out stimulus checks, that sort of thing. Because what you're trying to do is generate more spending. Uh, so there's more job creation, more hiring, so on. But they don't have that ability. They don't, they're not allowed to just send us all money, sadly. Uh, and so all they can do is uh, change the, you know, the credit conditions that are uh, facing markets and hope that that ends up working its way through the system. So that if, you know, if you're a business your stock price is higher, you're able to have access to cheap capital, then maybe you invest. And as you invest, you end up hiring more people. Now, in practice, what we've seen a lot over the past two years is that companies don't do this so much, that they you know, buy back stock or they raise their dividends or, or things of that nature. There's just only so much the Fed can do about that. It, it's, it has to do the best it can with the tools it has. And that's how we end up in this situation, kind of hoping that high stock prices end up in some way translating into better conditions for everybody. Isn't that kind of faith-based economics? I, I don't understand. I mean, even what the Fed did this time with asset purchases, it, it shattered a handful of taboos that we didn't have with, say, the Fed of, of 20 years ago. I mean, you used to be able to just buy government bonds and mortgage securities, right? And now they did more than that. 
They absolutely did. You know, they they did a, a quite a lot more than they'd done in ages after the global financial crisis. And then when the pandemic struck, they broadened those programs even more. But they did it for a good reason. Uh, so if, if you know, if you are a major corporation and in order to sort of pay your bills each month, you kind of go out to the market and you routinely borrowing sums of money over the short term, then if that short term funding suddenly dries up because everyone's scared to death about a pandemic, you're in trouble. You can't send out, you know, paychecks to workers. Uh, you can't buy the, you know, the components you need to produce whatever you're producing. Sure, sure. So they're trying to prevent those markets from breaking down so that normal economic activity can continue. Um, what's interesting, though, I think, is that if we look at how uh, the recovery from the pandemic was different from the recovery from the global financial crisis, you know, what we see it was a lot faster and more robust. Uh, and also there was a lot more inflation. And I think that's because the Fed got such a helping hand from uh, fiscal stimulus from the government sending checks to people, making unemployment benefits more generous, uh, all those sorts of things. And, and so it was a more balanced approach in this way. And it's partly because of that more balanced approach that growth has been so much stronger and inflation has been so much higher uh, than we've been used to. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Ryan Avent. He's trade and international economics editor at The Economist magazine. The cover story is how high will interest rates go? It's this multi, multi, multi trillion dollar question. In fact, you cite in your essay, the world's debts have reached 355% of GDP, making firms and households more sensitive to even small rate rises. There are a few examples of central banks taming inflation without the economy suffering recession. The last time America's inflation fell from over 5% without a downturn was over 70 years ago. Fighting inflation could put the world in a slump. Which has me thinking, Ryan, about institutional memories. When I talk to credit people and Wall Street bond traders, they lament that there's really nobody on these desks, nobody that remembers kind of the Volcker period and the, the pain trades of the late 70s and early 80s and, and true inflation and high interest rates and, I don't know, these fabled bond vigilantes and the like. It's all stuff that we read in economics textbooks, but no one, because the Fed has been so successful in breaking the back of inflation over 40 years, nobody truly remembers what capital I inflation is like to tame institutionally. Well, I think I think you're definitely right that there is uh, part of the shock that we're experiencing now is people just you know there are people who've been working on Wall Street for a long time who've never seen you know inflation rates that are this high or, or interest rates that were sort of sustainably above five percent. But I don't know, you know, I think it, it goes both ways a little bit, too, in the sense that, you know, the world is different now than it was in the 1970s. I think some people who have memories of the 1970s are kind of too eager to to see the world through that lens. Uh, when actually we're in a different place, the world's much more globalized. Financial markets are much more globalized. And as the uh, as the, the stories that we put together for last week's issue point out, the saving behavior is so much different. There's so much more money sloshing around, and that's part of what creates this low interest rate dynamic that just wasn't the case half a century ago. Well, tell me about the relationship between global savings and this savings glut and interest rates. It seems to be something that people don't think about. Mom and pop might think that inflation and the Fed disproportionately control where interest rates are headed. But then again, Ryan, we had our bond rating 
downgraded back in 2011 by Standard and Poor's. And the debt load has only kind of gotten bigger and multiplied. And uh, it seems like there's kind of this endless stream of people out there that need bonds, retirees and savers, whether they're Chinese or Brazilian or or, uh, baby boomers retiring that want fixed income that are willing to accept lower and lower yields. There's just this voracious demand side equation. Well, that's absolutely right. And I think that's the bit that people uh, don't necessarily understand when they're, you know, considering what the Fed is doing. You know, in the economy, uh, there are always some people who want to save money, you know, because they're preparing for retirement or they're going to have their kids college uh, that they have to pay for a variety of reasons. Uh, And then there are people who want to borrow either to buy a house or because they're looking to start a business or something like that. And, you know, interest rates move around to try to match borrowers uh, with with lenders, with savers. So, you know, if if interest rates are too high, you have too many people who want to save, too few people who want to borrow. And the result is an economy that ends up in a slump. So I think if we're looking at why interest rates have sort of trended down over this very long period all around the world, you know, what that represents is there are many more people looking to save, not just people, people, companies, uh, in some cases, governments uh, looking to save and fewer people looking to borrow and invest. And so as markets have tried to clear that market and try to make that match there and get more people willing to borrow to soak up that, those available savings, interest rates have gone down. Uh, and so, you know, it's the, the, the sort of fundamental reasons why interest rates have, have gotten lower uh, have to do with things like populations getting older and needing to do much more saving for retirement or things like inequality, where more money is in the hands of richer households. Richer households tend to save more of their income than households that don't earn as much. And so these kinds of trends means that there's more and more money piling up in retirement accounts and pension funds and uh, investment accounts. And, you know, the more uh, the more demand there is for bonds, the lower the rate those bonds have to pay to attract investment. So that's kind of the, the backstory. And is it, isn't it kind of by design you try to smoke people? If you're the Fed, even though you're not going to write this anywhere, you're trying to smoke them out of the safety of savings and bonds. So, you know, maybe they go in treasuries. So they, they go and they take risks. And they hire people and there's capital formation. And indeed, you write in the package, since 2000 alone, the value of global wealth held by households, firms, and governments has roughly tripled from $160 trillion to $510 trillion, or from about 460% of global GDP to 610%, according to the McKinsey Global Institute. Many of them have borrowed from each other to acquire assets, taking debts to worryingly high levels. And you see these other interesting uh, uh, side effects happen. I mean, I don't want to take you into a cul-de-sac, but these recording artists selling their uh, record label uh, uh, contracts and the like, because when you have investment bankers out there eager to make a fixed income-like product with something that lasts into perpetuity or offers a yield that's north of whatever kind of the the, the piddling treasury equivalent is, you see kind of financial, quote-unquote, innovation. I, no, absolutely. Uh, and and you're not I don't think you're going down a cul-de-sac at all to kind of talk about those other asset classes. Uh, you know, that's people have a lot of money they're looking to kind of store in places where they think they can get a return. Um, that money is finding its way into, you know, well, it's found its way into all the sort of traditional categories for investment and push down the returns that people earn on those things. So then you have people coming along and saying, can we create other asset classes that'll attract money? But you're right. That's not really what the Fed wants to happen. What the Fed wants to happen is for people who are happy with their money sitting in government bonds 
to say these bonds aren't earning us enough of a return. So what we're going to go do is start a new company. You know, we're going to go add to the productive capacity of the economy in some way by borrowing money and building a new factory. And I think one of the sort of frustrating things for policymakers over the past three decades is that interest rate policy hasn't pushed us in that direction, really. It's mostly just had people looking for new ways to kind of invest in the next asset class, even though that doesn't necessarily add to what the economy is capable of producing. Full disclosure, listen to Ryan Avent. He's trade and international economics editor at The Economist, where the cover story we're discussing is how high will interest rates go? Clearly, everybody's talking about record stock markets, record real estate uh, prices, crypto assets, NFTs left and right, but you're also seeing headline inflation at 7%. What is the true worrisome inflation uh, that, that's not fleeting or ephemeral? It's when you see this echo chamber effect of, oh boy, I need to get a raise. You demand a raise, prices go up, people see prices go up, they go and they demand raises and you get a vicious spiral. Is that what the Fed is is chiefly looking to snuff out right now? That's right. I mean, the thing that you worry about is that everyone comes to expect higher inflation. And so they're, you know, they're less bothered when prices go up by 5%. They're like, well, we'll just pay it. You know, we're, we're going to get it back in, in pay increases anyway. And these things start to start to feed on themselves. And, you know, if you look back in the 1970s, there were a lot of things about how the economy worked that kind of encouraged this kind of inflation feeding on itself cycle. So you had unions that were more powerful and they had wage contracts that were linked to inflation. So inflation went up, the wage contracts with big unions automatically went up. And that kind of really had this accelerator effect on on inflation, translating back into faster prices and faster wages. The world's a little different now. We don't have as many of those natural accelerator things. But it, yeah, if people become convinced that you know 7% inflation isn't just a one-year thing, that it's going to be like this year and year out, that makes it much harder to, to get prices back down to the rates of inflation the Fed would prefer to see. And so they're, the reason they're thinking about four or five, maybe more interest rate hikes this year is to try to nip that process in the bud. You know, the risk there is that they're a little bit overzealous about it, uh, that maybe they overestimate the extent to which these things are starting to feed on themselves. And instead, what they end up in do doing is uh, inducing a recession. Yeah. And this is what I don't understand. Uh, you kind of argue, some people out there in following this, that when you see a jobs report, the likes that we did, what the Biden administration oversaw six and a half million jobs created and unemployment is at 4%. You want an environment that is tolerant of rate increases because you want to have and I don't mean to mix metaphors here. You want to have arrows in the quiver in case the economy is thrown into recession so you can stimulate again, i.e. bring down interest rates? Well, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it, so it, it is good in general when you if you're heading into a, a weaker economy for the Fed to be able to do a lot of interest rate cutting. You know, that's kind of like the Fed putting its foot down on the accelerator. Uh, and when rates are stuck near zero and then you're going into a recession, it's like in, there's no more room to push the accelerator. So you're in real trouble. But it, it doesn't follow that what we want to do is jack up rates really high now. So there's more room to cut them later. Uh, what you need is for the economy to kind of be so strong on its own for, you know, desired investment to be so strong on its own that pushes up interest rates and uh, that the Fed is able to kind of allow interest rates to rise without cutting off economic growth so that then when the rainy day comes, they're better prepared. You know, Ryan, I've always uh, mulled this question with sources and with family members and with uh, gray beards and, and greenhorns alike. But uh, when were things last 
normal <laughs> from a monetary from a monetary policy perspective where we didn't have war or exogenous shock or Saddam invading Kuwait rates taken to zero rates taken to 15% what what can we look back at as saying is kind of an equilibrium benchmark for a fed at neutral and the economy at kind of its organic staying power outside of too much or too little stimulus from the central bank. Do you see where I'm getting at? I do. I mean, I think people would probably point to the 1990s uh, as the as the closest thing to what you might think is a good normal. Um, you know, at that point, you had strong economic growth, but not so strong that it was triggering a big surge in inflation. You had a central bank that felt like it had the economy under control. And you know, it's funny to think back about how people talked about Greenspan in the 1990s. You know, that he was this sort of godlike figure who could make the economy do exactly what he wanted. And part of the backdrop to that was that, you know, you had a U.S. economy that was enjoying this productivity boom that was based on a lot of uh, investment, like productive investment in building out the Internet and things like that. And I think one of the reasons we haven't been able to replicate that experience is because there hasn't been as much of that. There hasn't been as much of companies going out and building a lot of plant and equipment and new infrastructure to make the economy much stronger. You know, in the 2010s, investment was the lowest it's been in the post-war period. And that just makes it much harder on the Fed to try to keep things under control, prevent it from going too far in either direction. You know, some people do take me to the cautionary story of uh, the spring of 1994, when the Greenspan Fed had to pull off an emergency rate hike from 3.5%, I mean, unthinkable, 3.5%, to three and three quarters percent after rates were already being hiked throughout the year by a quarter point each time. Then after this emergency hike, the Fed had to take up rates by a half a point and then another half a point and then a three quarters percent increase to 5.5%. Uh, there are people on Wall Street who say that you know firms were failing and uh, people were in kind of disarray. You see it as kind of a blip on the long-term interest rate chart and whatnot, but there was a tremendous amount of bloodshed before obviously things picked up and the internet and the dot-com boom of the 90s took us to new highs. No, you're definitely right. The, that, that period uh, was one in which the 90s economy almost, uh, you know, was, was sort of strangled in its bed. Uh, you know, that was sort of the backdrop for the, you know, the Democrats' losses in the midterms in 1994. And it's an interesting thing to look back on. You know, it's, it's also something where they, the Fed actually did manage to tighten without tipping the economy into recession. Uh, and so in some ways, I think, you know, central, the central bank would- But there were, there were bank failures. There were hedge fund failures. There were, there were failures. I mean, people were blindsided as much as the Fed tried to telegraph. It's kind of unthinkable to imagine a half a point rate hike right now, but some people are whispering about it. They are. And I think it's, you know, one thing that we've seen shift over uh, the last 20 years is uh, the communication strategy that central banks have. And in the 90s, it was a point of pride for Greenspan, really, if people didn't understand what he was going to do or why he was going right, to do it. Right. Whereas now, central bankers try to communicate very clearly everything they're going to do well in advance and why they're going to do it. And I think that in general is kind of more what you want to see. But one consequence of that is that it makes markets much, much more sensitive, I think, to any whisper of a shift in policy that's unexpected. And so in a way, we've sort of made ourselves, uh, we've gotten ourselves in a situation where, where there's a little bit more fragility surrounding Fed policy announcements that just wasn't there 20 years ago. And so you might say that the Fed is able to do a lot more just by sort of 
slightly altering its communications than it could in the past. I mean, they were measuring Alan Greenspan's briefcase size on, on CNBC. There was a whole sport about it, like deconstructing his gnomic speak that he put <laughs> in three right. adverbs. Or four. There was a certain burlesque to it, which you know made it interesting. I was working on a trading desk when during the uh, LTCM and Russia collapse, they came in and did these massive rate cuts and, and saved the stock market and the economy. And um, now it seems like everything is so premeditated. Even so, Ryan, you have... Not a lot of agreement over how many rate hikes we can expect this year. Yeah. Well, I think part of the reason there is less consensus about that is is it's less because of the communication that the Fed has offered and more because of just a fundamental uncertainty over what's going to happen with the economy. You know, we really are in very unusual territory. You know, we have these continuing supply chain disruptions. We really don't know how long those are, those are going to last, uh, when they're going to dissipate. You know, you have a lot of people who left the labor force during the pandemic. And there's a lot of uncertainty about when or whether they might come back. There's a lot of uncertainty about energy prices, which have gone up a lot over the winter. And, you know, if Russia were to invade Ukraine, they could go up a ton more. And so I think the uncertainty we're seeing about the path of policy is much more about the world being a really uncertain place now and less about the Fed not being as clear as it would like to be about what it's what it's trying to do. We are talking to Ryan Avent, trade and international economics editor at The Economist. Full disclosure, I am Robin Farzad. Please stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, NPR One, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to your friends and family. Additionally, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, MySpace, Friendster, whatever you like at handle fulldradio. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Ryan Avent. He's trade and international economics editor at The Economist. We're discussing the cover story that's out, how high will interest rates go? It's a question on on everyone's uh, minds. Uh, let me let me ask you this. There is a more than a silver lining to this cover package here. You're wondering, well, if the world is saying we have this glut of savings and we're kind of buffering you from runaway inflation, you might as well go and invest it uh, you know, as as central banks and policymakers to constructive purposes, i.e., you mentioned clean tech and clean energy, and uh, these are technologies that are truly transformational, such as the internet that can engender further productivity gains. They can be broadly deflationary for the broad economy if you're able to harvest, not having to depend on on petroleum and fossil fuels. Break that out for us. Well, so I I think you're absolutely right. You have you know you have a lot of people, a lot of households, a lot of firms that are trying to save, that are looking for places to put their money, that are eager to buy government bonds, even though, you know, treasury bonds only have a yield of uh, 1.9% or, or so. And so is there anything positive to come out of the situation? Well, yeah, I think if the, you know, if the government were to borrow in ways that made the economy more resilient, increase the productive capacity of the economy over the long run by, you know, investing in clean tech and building out power grids, improving infrastructure, all these things. Then you're providing savers with more safe government bonds to hold their money in. And at the same time, you're, you know, taking advantage of these low rates to make the economy better off. And I so I think that, you know, that is in broad strokes what we would like to see happen. I think we've run into a problem because we tried to shove a bit too much spending through the bottlenecks created by supply chain disruptions by the pandemic and so on. Um, and that's yielded an inflation problem. 
and I think I'm a little worried that actually that's going to convince some people that the sort of that fundamental story where it's smart to borrow when rates are low to make investments in your long run strength of your economy. You know, I'm, I'm worried that, that people are going to think that's not a good idea, idea now because we had this inflation problem. But the point of the piece that we've sort of written is that these savings aren't going to go away, most likely. And so there's going to continue to be that pool of money there that's available to finance a lot of useful stuff. And we shouldn't allow, you know, these short run inflation troubles to discourage us and think that we can't actually afford, um, you know, making these sorts of investments. Ryan, a 10-year treasury is currently yielding uh, somewhere just under 2%, and you're seeing less you know, yields on kind of a five-year or two-year shorter-dated securities. But then I see parallel to your cover package, the Wall Street Journal runs a feature on uh, the Series I savings bonds from the treasury, which uh, have protection against inflation. There's a certain limit to what you can buy as a household, but they currently yield, quote, a juicy 7.12%. Why can't Uncle Sam meet me in the middle, right? You have objectives, infrastructure, all of these great things. You have the lack of bond vigilantes. People are just dying for yield. Why can't you give them feel-good feel yield, right? <laughs> if there's a power to offer you inflation-protected yields, is it because you can't get more than 50 votes in the Senate? I mean, break, break this out for me. It should be easier uh, to invest. I mean, beyond Build Back Better, to develop the grid, to induce uh, solar, uh, uh, help the likes of West Virginia become whole after coal, right? All of these different things on the wish list, if we're in this rarefied period where you can spend and to bank dividends over the long run. Well, I think, uh, you know, there's a, there's sort of two stories there. You know, one is the, uh, can we give people seven and a half percent on on their savings accounts. You know, I, I think that's a difficult thing. You need a, an economy that's in a fundamentally different place uh, that's growing a lot faster. Uh, to But the government is offering me 7.12% on savings, $10,000 a household, right? If you were to offer some different tranche, and again, I'm taking you in a whimsical territory, but specifically, you're saying that there's a disconnect right now, all of this restive cash on the sidelines, and it has it's been having perverse effects with overstock buybacks or wealthy families transferring money to other wealthy families. Why couldn't it be induced to be put to more productive kind of government use? Well, I, I, I think you have to look at the, the political process and what we're capable of doing politically. You know, there, you know, it's great that we got uh, an infrastructure bill passed with some bipartisan support. That's wonderful. Uh, you know, it's overdue. But in terms of what that's going to do to the deficit, uh, it, it's actually pretty minimal. You know, a lot of that is paid for through, uh, you know, various offsets. And, and also it's kind of a short, relatively short window. You know, we're just not looking at kind of a sustained, massive, uh, effort to say build out a national high-speed rail network, or to completely replace, you know, fossil fuel energy sources with green energy sources, that would soak up a lot of capital. Doing that, you know, that's the kind of thing that would would you know, a get us on track to meet our climate goals, and b really put savings to work. But that's not what we're seeing, and and that's and we're not seeing that, you know, partly because the government uh, can't get the votes it needs to do really, really aggressive spending, partly because the government can't get the votes it needs to set the rules that would encourage private firms uh, to do that kind of aggressive spending, you know, by by putting a price on carbon, something like that. So, yeah, it's it, yeah, I think in, in large part, it is uh, it is a problem in Washington. Now, if you look back, if you were to look back 50 years, it wasn't necessarily just the case that Washington was functioning a lot better. Uh mm. 
Right. I, but but we were in a different place where uh, population was a lot younger. It was growing a lot faster. And so, you know, private firms were already more willing to make investments. And there was a lot less in the way of, of savings that needed to be put to work to keep the economy from slumping. So, you know, it's we're in a different place in terms of the the you know, desired saving and the growth rate of the economy and to sort of get the same sort of fast growth and higher interest rates that we saw a half century ago, we thus need Washington to work way better <laughs> than it did in the past. And that's obviously not where we are. You know, Ryan, reading this great package in The Economist, the cover package, how high will interest rates go and the mention of decarbonization and climate. And what I mentioned earlier with with record labels and veteran artists selling off their libraries, don't you suspect that uh, true rational carbon pricing and decarbonization is going to lead to kind of a bevy of fixed income like instruments where that can kind of sop up some of the savings? Again, I know I'm taking you into some bit of the weeds, but we're talking about a true chance for if everybody out there, every financial services firm is talking about this massive intergenerational transfer of wealth. I mean, people are looking for better alternatives. You see people uh, that, that like to load up on high dividend stock portfolios as an alternative to bond portfolios. If you if you get into something that's creative and it's not kind of uh, snake oily like <laughs> you know collateralized debt obligations – uh, maybe you can offer some kind of great supply and get the uh, infrastructural bang as well in terms of decarbonization. I think, I mean, you're right in terms of the big picture, uh, but it ends up being harder to kind of push us there than you might think. And, and and part of the reason is that, you know, when you think about what private companies are doing, you know, there's a huge amount of uncertainty regarding what energy costs are going to be uh, in the future, you know, whether or not governments are actually going to take steps to to sort of set a carbon price or to require certain amounts of renewable energy to be produced as part of the national mix. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty there. There's less uncertainty involved with kind of carving out a, a little niche uh, somewhere in the media world, securing the rights to something that can't be duplicated uh, and, and selling that. So there's, you know, you've seen a ton of money pouring into big tech companies, tech valuation shooting through the roof. You know, those are companies that are, have kind of proven, proven earnings models uh, that have a lot of uh, protection against competitive pressures from other firms. Uh, and that's where the money's flowing. If we, if we had, you know, those sorts of risk reward trade-offs available in the energy sector now, and we could, I think with the right policy, we could have that kind of risk reward trade-off. Then you would see much more investment in that direction. But, and you know, it, there are a lot of reasons why we don't see that. People don't want their energy bills to go up. Um, fossil fuel interests still have a lot of weight in Washington. There are concerns about, you know, if the U.S. passes tough climate policy and its uh, competitors abroad don't, what happens to U.S. industry? There are reasons why we don't have the things that we want to see. Um, but that is why we're not necessarily seeing the investment boom we'd like to. You were listening to Ryan Avent. He is trade and international economics editor at The Economist. We were discussing the cover package, how high will interest rates go? Uh, sir, I really appreciate it. You're always welcome to join us. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends and family. We are on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. 
Twitter at handle Full D Radio. And you can catch us on our radio partners, Radio IQ, WVTF, Virginia Public Radio. We are on WERA 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia. You can catch us down in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM and out west in Ventura, California on KPPQ. Holler if you too would like us on your air. If you are just tuning in, we're talking about interest rates. How high will they go? Can they go after this unprecedented monetary and fiscal stimulus coming out of the COVID calamity? My guest now is Chip Huey. He's Managing Director, Fixed Income at Truist Advisory Services, which is run by one of the nation's largest banks, uh, Truist, product of the merger of BB&T and SunTrust. How are you? Welcome to Full Disclosure. Thank you, Robin. Great to be here. Appreciate it. You know, I discussed with The Economist institutional memory. You know, you're a young guy who's worked in fixed income much of your professional adult life. But uh, these stories we hear about bond vigilantes and inflation and everything are largely the province of the late 70s and early 80s. So who the heck knows from experience, from battle wounds, from from battle scars, what, you know, a, a spiking interest rate environment is like anyway? It's a great point. I, I think it's a fair point. Uh, I, you know, if you, if I go back and and look uh, over my my seventeen years of experience, you know, the highest ten year U.S. Treasury yield in my career is about five point three percent, and that was all the way back in two thousand seven. And you know, that's 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 a mm. that's a level that's a, a fraction uh, of the levels you know, that we saw in the period you're talking about. You know, the late nineteen seventies, really through most of the 1990s. So the short answer to your question is a diminishing number of participants uh, are familiar with the uh, with the type of environment that we currently find ourselves. What is, you know, I ask a lot of guests this, what is capital I inflation? We've certainly seen hints of it before. There was the Federal Reserve's taper tantrum in, uh, what was it, 2013, coming out of the uh, record stimulus of the financial crisis record for back then. And people were worried that rates would shoot ever higher and that there was a market sell-off and a bond sell-off. But all that was short-lived as everybody still you know, came back into to, to bonds, plowed back into them. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting part, You know, a, a big distinction with what we have today relative to, say, just back uh, in, the previous, in the previous cycle. I think that the, you know, if you're going to do as, as much apples to apples as you can, because current situation is certainly unprecedented in so many ways, but if you go back to you know, December of 2015, when the Fed was just about to lift rates for the first time since, uh, since the financial crisis, and you kind of line up the economic indicators at that time, we were dealing with a very different animal. So just just by comparison, you've got you've got GDP growth. Uh, you know, this is on a say a, qu- a quarterly basis, uh, but annualized. Back at at liftoff in fifteen, it was zero point six percent. Right, that was the fourth quarter of twenty fifteen. Today, it's six point nine percent. You know, if wow, <laughs> if you if you compare, say, core CPI inflation, right, you're looking at something in the low two percent range, two point one percent. Today it's five point five percent, and if you take if you take say you know the ten year level it, itself, you're already at two point two percent at this at this point. And today it's you, you know you're you're still below that one point nine percent. But we've we've only re- well. Here's a question, Chip. It begs the question: Why the Fed is at maximum easing interest rate policy this late into the game? I mean, one of the knocks on them is that they've stayed too cheap for too long. 
and that uh, something Alan Greenspan had to play catch up with with the housing bubble. You know, Ben Bernanke trying to trying to put uh, the the era of 2000, 2007 to two thousand nine easing to rest. You know, the possible side effects and the spillovers and the flammability are terrifying. And you ask the Fed and the Fed would say, well, we're it's not in our job to target bubbles. I've had uh, the Federal Reserve president of Richmond on, uh, the several presidents of Richmond going back, you know, uh, Al Broadus, uh, Jeffrey Lacker, the most recent president, and they said it's just not within their target. They look at employment and inflation and you can't have us targeting asset bubbles. Right. I think one of the one of the key differences here is a, a couple of things. One, the the idea that inflation would cool down uh, far quicker than was anticipated by the Fed. You know, really in in, in early twenty one, mid twenty one, even the idea that inflation, as supply chain issues eased, would help bring inflation back down and allow the Fed to take you know, an even more uh, patient approach. Because the Fed, by its own admission, knows that the policy tools at its disposal are really geared towards dealing with demand side inflation as opposed to supply side inf- inflation. So we, we'd have, we have the, this idea of, of supply chains being significantly disrupted by labor shortages in the pandemic. And that is driving prices up for a, a, a pretty atypical reason than what you would see the Fed normally have to, to step up to the plate and address. So that is a key difference before. And what has exacerbated the the situation is that a a good portion of the spending that we have typically seen on the services side has transitioned even more so over to the goods side. So you've got robust goods demand at the same time as you've got these significant supply challenges. So it's a it's a the inflation that we're seeing, while very real and uh, and certainly you know from a statistical level, uh, historically. Uh, unprecedented uh, or extremely strong at the very least, that's a, that's a, that's a, a key difference in, in what is driving current inflationary pressures. Chip, why does the Fed not have more surgically precise tools? I, I understand one of the knocks on, on U.S. Central Bank in the modern era is that it has this big, blunt instrument. It could flood the land with cheap money and it could pull it away. And a lot of things, unintended things benefit, such as, you know, crypto assets and uh, real estate speculation, you know, maybe flippers in the housing market and the like. And you get a lot of the people who are the intended targets of it don't truly feel the stimulative oats of it. Why is it that, you know, when you have uh, such a peculiar inflation in this case, which as you describe is so supply side driven with a uh, demand shock, we can't get lumber, we can't get chicken, we can't get um, particle paper for napkins or substrate, uh, that kinds of stuff that the Fed is going to come in here and hike rates that would choke off important demand. I think that that really harkens back to really the, the Fed's dual mandate, right, which is to is to encourage full employment conditions as well as price stability over the long term. And I think in the in in looking simplistically at the at the dual mandate, the tools that that are currently in their toolbox uh, or or were even previously in their toolbox, you know, could address those things, particularly if it was if to address, you know, if there was an overheating in either of those uh, two areas, because generally it would come out of more organic. Uh, organic reasons or drivers behind that. This this time, it, the 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 drivers are, are so are so atypical, given that they are the the byproduct of a of a global health crisis, and then the the recovery uh, coming out of it. So the Fed has had to really think on its feet, really over the over the course of the past you know, decade or so, 
in, in trying to add tools to the toolbox to address to address you know exactly what you're talking about to be able to be a bit more nuanced than just to address its two its two key mandates. The, although those are still the two key mandates that the Fed is focused on, uh, we know that the Fed is is certainly concerned with a, a broader scope uh, of of issues as well. Chip, I want to quote from uh, Alan Blinder's column in the Wall Street Journal. Alan Blinder was former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve. was one of my college professors, economics professors. He writes, the Fed should raise interest rates, but gently. Tightening is obviously necessary, but getting it right calls for caution, flexibility, and humility. He said the FOMC's initial steps are clear, and they were more or less announced at the January 25th, 26th meeting. With the economy essentially at, quote, maximum employment and inflation far too high, the Fed must seize expanding its balance sheet and start raising interest rates. Those two policy changes are obvious in coming, albeit a bit late. If I go down, I say, by how high will rates go and how fast? That's where the decisions start getting tough. Fed watchers should understand that after some modest tightening, the central bank will be looking at two-sided risk. This kind of brings to mind the the, the, the the impossible task that they have. Yes, you want to extinguish some of these forces that have been causing this uncomfortable 7% employment, but you don't want to plunge the economy into a recession or a deep recession. Absolutely. And we couldn't agree more. And we do think that the Fed is probably going to take not only a slightly slower approach than the market currently expects. As of right now, the market's pricing in between five and six rate hikes in 2022. And we don't expect the Fed to be quite that aggressive. In fact, we, we, we are expecting closer to four hikes in 2022. And then also a more of a, of a hybrid approach to tightening monetary policy in 2022. And that's, that's really for several reasons. You know, for, for one, I think that one one sort of complication that the Fed faces that is that's significant is the current shape of the yield curve. So right now between the 2-year and 10-year US Treasury yields, you're looking at about a difference of 62 basis points. If you go Hold it, you have to de-jargonize this for our listeners. All right, when we talk about a yield curve, what is that? So a yield curve would be would basically be the extrapolation of US Treasury yields from from the very front end of the curve, you call it 30-day yields out to 30-year yields. So and then at each maturity in between uh, those different maturity lengths. So very short-term government bonds versus the longest-term government bonds and what they That's yield exactly right. along that curve. And, it, it, and it's okay. important. It, the, the two to 10-year is, is very important because it has become viewed as a, a, a pretty reliable uh, barometer of economic health. So what you would like to see and what the Fed would like to see is a healthy distance between the amount of yield offered by a two-year U.S. Treasury bond, right, versus a 10-year. You would like to see, obviously, a higher yield, greater compensation for the investor for holding on to that to that longer maturity in the 10-year. But what we have seen is that in instances where the yield curve flattens, so that that difference becomes less and less and less, and then. Uh, it eventually uh, inverts where the two-year yield is actually higher than the 10-year yield, that has generally been a decent predictor of economic malaise uh, within the next six to 18 months after that signal is triggered. So that so is the bond curve right now telling us, is it signaling recession coming out of this rate hiking? That is, not, that is not what we think it's saying. What, what we think it is saying is that the Fed does need to, to be careful uh, and allow and, and, and task itself with preserving 
a healthy yield curve because, the, frankly, the scar tissue is very real from 2018 and 19, where during the, the Fed hike cycle, the yield curve did invert. If you're just tuning in, we're talking to Chip Huey, Managing Director of Fixed Income and Truist Advisory Services, which is run by one of the nation's biggest banks, Truist, product of the merger of BB&T and SunTrust. You know, I want to get to some of these after effects. I mean, look, the stock market, Chip, I know it's it's a parallel show. It's the other side of the ledger to what you follow in fixed income. But your clients ask about it, and we've never seen this many trillion-dollar players in the stock market. I think there are five or six. You see NFTs coin left and right. You've seen an unbelievable market for SPACs, risk-taking. This has spilled over into real estate, which has had a record year and a record recovery, and nobody can seem to afford a starter home. Recently, stock market valuation PEs on kind of a, a cyclically adjusted level hit a nearly an all-time high, there are consequences to keeping money too cheap for too long. Agreed. And we definitely think that it's 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 time for the Fed to start re- removing removing accommodation. That it, to, to raise interest rates is wholly appropriate uh, at this point. Um, and we, we just believe that it needs to take a, a slightly more cautious approach than the, than the market is currently, is currently pricing in. So what we would expect to see is that if the initial couple three rate hikes you know, con- continue to flatten the U.S. Treasury yield curve, the Fed would look pretty quickly to other tools in its policy toolbox mainly by lightening its balance sheet. Now, whether that's passively by letting its the maturities on its balance sheet roll off. All right, I got to de-jargonize you again. Okay. The Fed has been buying tens and tens of billions of dollars of bonds. So it would offload these bonds. I mean, it's had several several you know arrows in its quiver, if you will. And this is kind of the whole process of them deleveraging or, or de-stimulating the economy. In closing, Chip, I have to ask you to shed a tear for the saver. What happens to savers throughout all of this? What if you've been on your best behavior? What if you're not in the in, in the world of bonds or stocks or everything? You just wanted a decent yield on your savings. That seems to have been a forgotten constituency amid all of this zero interest rate policy. Well, we think that it's 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 likely that you know as we progress through 2022 and in, and into the next year that we'll actually see yields rise. If you look if you look at you know, several many different metrics of of current economic activity, whether you're looking at GDP, obviously inflation, consumer activity. If you look across you know, the, the number of economic you know, variables, yields just look too low still. And we do believe that through this, through the, the hybrid approach to policy normalization that we think the Fed will take on, not only have we already seen you know, a pretty steep move to higher yields in the front end of the curve, right, in short dated U.S. Treasuries or government debt, we expect to see intermediate and long yields rise as well. And that would be a good thing for savers. That would allow that would allow new investments among retirees, from institutional investors, from from overseas who are still dealing with extremely low yields as well. That would create significant opportunities to capture uh, some of the highest yields that we have seen in some time. So we think that while the yield while the yield environment has been challenging for savers, the current recovery should allow opportunities to lock in. Uh, more more attractive uh, returns for those type of investors. Chip Huey, Managing Director, Fixed Income, Truist Advisory Services. Uh, sir, 
thank you for coming on and please come back on. Anytime. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Robin. You're welcome. Full disclosure, special thanks to our producer, Claire Morgan at Notterly, this show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram at handle fulldradio and on all manner of radio stations, including Radio IQ, WVTF across the great Commonwealth of Virginia, WERA in Arlington and in much of D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out west in Ventura. And of course, I exhort you to holler if you too would like full disclosure on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>